Hello, and thank you for joining today's call. This is the second in our Solutions 2020 series featuring, featuring candidates for president and other policymakers likely to shape the 2020 race. We are thrilled to have Senator Kamala Harris of California with us today. I'm Jim Doyle with Business Forward, and I'll be moderating our conversation. Currently, all lines are in listen-only mode. Senator Harris serves on the Homeland Security and Government, Government Affairs Committees, the Select Committee on Intelligence, the Committee on the Judiciary, and the Committee on the Budget. Since taking office, she has introduced and co-sponsored legislation to raise wages for working people, reform our broken criminal justice system, make health care a right for all Americans, address the epidemic of substance abuse, support veterans and military families, and expand access to child care for working parents. We've asked Senator Harris to briefly talk about what she would do if elected president, and we are leaving the bulk of our time for you to ask questions and make recommendations. Uh, for those of you who are new to our programming, Business Forward organizes local roundtables, Washington fly-ins, conference calls, webinars, and media trains from more than 100,000 business leaders across America, more than 650 mayors, governors, members of Congress, senior administration officials uh, have participated in our programming, including two presidents, a vice president, and more than half of the 30 men and women likely to run for president. Uh, this is all thanks to the support of more than 60 of America's most respected companies. Before we get started, uh, two housekeeping items. First, you can participate in two ways. You can email your question to us at info at businessfwd.org, and we'll read it aloud. Please note the name of your business and where you live uh, on your message. That's info at businessfwd.org. You can also press 1 on your dial pad at any time to get into queue to ask your question live. We'll get in as many questions as we can. Second, this call is on the record and there may be reporters present. Senator Harris, thank you for joining us today. Please go ahead. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be with everyone and I want to thank everyone. I know that we have people who are on the call from around the globe. So thank you for waking up at, at odd hours and also everyone else for your time. Um, I know this is a, a, a conversation among many great leaders, so thank you for that. So I'll start by saying that um, I value, and I think we all should value, a strong U.S. economy. And um, it is a priority for me that our economy not only be strong, but healthy and robust. And, and it is equally important that our economy work for everyone. So when I think about uh, top priorities, I will tell you that one of my top priorities is to make sure that we support working middle class families. And when I travel around the country, as I've been doing for quite some time, um, there is a real gap in terms of working families' ability to meet the demands of, of, of their daily lives. And, and um, there's a lot of work that we need to do to really lift up those working and middle class families, which is why I am proposing, among various proposals, that um, we do what I called lifting those families up through an initiative that I'm proposing, which is to, to change the tax code so that families who are making less than $100,000 a year will receive up to $500 a month in tax credits. And um, this will impact 183 million people in our country. Uh, economists who we have been working with um, tell us that this will be the largest tax cut for middle class families and generations. And essentially it is about, again, lifting those families up, understanding that um, we also know that almost half of American families right now cannot afford a $400 unexpected expense. Uh, which, and so having that $400 unexpected expense, be it a car breaking down or a hospital bill, could completely um, topple that, that family's uh, financial health and well-being. 
Um, we also know in our country today, 99% of the counties in the United States, um, if someone is a minimum, minimum wage worker working full time, they cannot afford market rate for a one bedroom apartment. So these are the realities of where we are in the country as it relates in particular to working middle class families. Um, I am also a proponent for what we need to do around equal pay. We need stronger laws that lift up women. So for example, the Paycheck Fairness Act is something I support. Um, it will lift up families and lift up communities and, and, and by extension all of society. When we help women and, and uplift them in, from the, in their economic standing, it benefits all of society. Another proposal that I'm offering, and um, I don't think it's new by any stretch, but it's something we still have yet to achieve, is affordable childcare and a national policy around affordable childcare for all families. Um, because the fact is that childcare is unaffordable for many, many working middle class families. The average annual cost of childcare is as high as in-state tuition at some universities, and that's obviously not tenable. Uh, I also believe that we need to recognize that if we're going to strengthen our economy, we have to rebuild America's crumbling infrastructure. And that relates both to what we do in terms of transportation and in particular the roads and bridges, knowing that so much of the infrastructure in our country is 100 to 150 years old and is crumbling. And that creates real issues in terms of workers' productivity, the ability of people to have a, a decent quality of life, and, and just the mundane detail of what is involved when the roads and bridges are crumbling, including um, potholes that cost people a great deal of money in terms of the kind of repairs they have to do to their automobiles, much less um, bad design for roads and bridges that cause people to sit in traffic for hours on end and, and away, therefore, from their families and or their workplace. So these are real issues that relate not only to the quality of life of the American public, but it is also about a lack of productivity. And obviously, that has a, an impact on the economy of our country. Um, the other reason I care about the economy equally is, is the issue of, of climate change and what we need to do to meet and tackle this climate crisis. Um, climate change is, I think we all know, impacts the entire economy. Um, it impacts our agricultural base, it impacts our health, it impacts tourism, and, um, and especially when we've seen it in my home state of California in terms of natural disasters, but actually around the country. So this is something that has economic impact both in terms of the devastation and then the need to repair from that devastation, but also there are, um, there are opportunities available through the investment of infrastructure in terms of job creation. And um, we cannot overlook the importance of investing in our future, not only in terms of the obvious point about infrastructure itself, but also investing in the jobs of the future. In fact, I would point everyone to a list of the 20 jobs that are going to see the greatest amount of growth over the next 10 years. The Bureau of Labor Standards um, published this report mid-last year. And over the course of 2016 through 2026, of the 20 jobs that will see the greatest amount of growth in our country, number one and number two are installation and maintenance of, of solar paneling and wind turbines. And that speaks not only to the future of work, but it also speaks to the importance of investing the skills in what we need to do around investment in renewable energy. Again, it's an infrastructure point. It's also a climate change point. And um, 
But I will also say that in addition to investment in infrastructure, we need to invest in the, the future of work in our country. Um, over the next 15 years, as many as 40% of the jobs that currently exist will no longer exist. And we have not done an adequate job as a country in preparing the workforce for the jobs of the 21st century. And we have to do a better job. And I strongly believe that in order to, to meet the demand, uh, we are going to have to see greater collaboration between the private sector, the public sector, our educational institutions, um, organized labor, all of those folks who have the ability, because they have a proven ability to create apprenticeship programs, proven an ability to work at the community level around community colleges and universities, and then of course the private sector helping to um, create the priorities around what should be taught, what skills are needed to meet the demands of, of the work that must be performed. And I think there's great opportunity there, but it will require a president who has the ability to bring people together from all sectors to work in a common purpose of, of meeting the demands and also meeting the demand that we rightly should place on ourselves of ensuring that our country is competitive as it relates to our friends around the globe. And I, we, I think, are behind in terms of where we need to be, but I also believe we can catch up. So um, all of that to say that um, there is a lot of work to be done. I, I am optimistic about our ability to get that work done. I do believe that in order to be successful in terms of building our economy with a focus on uplifting families and working families, with an emphasis on, on preparing workers for the jobs of the future, um, with an emphasis on supporting small businesses, which is something I care a great deal about. Um, we are going to have to have um, collaboration. We're going to have to have open communication. And um, we're going to also have to invest and invest in small businesses, invest in families, invest in workers. And I know many of you have been leaders on all of these issues. So I thank you for the work that you've done, and I look forward to our conversation. And Jim, at this point, why don't we open it up to questions? Thank you very much, Senator. Our, our first question is from Rosina Rubin from New York. Rosina, you're on the line. Good afternoon, and um, thank you, Jim and Ed, for arranging this call. And thank you, Senator Harris, for joining us today. I'm a lifelong Democrat and I have run a small business with my husband for 30 years. The decade from 2008 to 2018 was a daily challenge to make sure that the 75 people who work here would have a job to come to. Over the same period, government at the federal, state, and local levels, often with the best of intentions, brought to bear on small businesses numerous legislative and regulatory mandates, which resulted in unintended consequences. I spend much of my time on compliance issues or struggling to be heard by legislators who say, oh, we didn't realize that this would be the impact on you. Please tell me why you should be the candidate of choice for me and 28 million small business owners across the country and specifically what you will do to bring small businesses to the table in a significant, meaningful way. Well, first of all, I thank you for your leadership. And um, I, I strongly believe that small businesses are a key engine to growth in our economy. Um, in my experience throughout my life and career, I will tell you that small business owners 
are also not only leaders in business, but leaders in, in terms of civic leaders and, and part of the civic leadership of a community. Small business owners are not only invested in their business, but invested in their neighborhoods and their communities and, um, and are part of what is really the strength of America's economy and um, the strength of uh, any community. And so I applaud your work and the work of, of small business leaders understanding that small business leaders are not only concerned about their business, but they're concerned about their community. Um, I, I'll tell you a few things. One, there's no question that in any policy um, perspective, in any policy proposal, small business leaders have to be a part of helping to fashion the, the proposal and the policy. Um, and part of the failure, I think, is that the voice of those leaders has not been um, as welcome or as, as, um, as consulted as they should be. So there is that. I also think about it more specifically in the context of what we need to do to provide greater access to capital for small business leaders. Um, we need to, where we can, cut the red tape and inefficiencies at places like the SBA and, frankly, the whole of government. Um, we have great inefficiencies, and, I, and I'm acutely aware of that, and the bureaucracy that can slow down effective and efficient um, business. Uh, the other piece that I would say is that we have, we have a need to have federal agencies look at the impact to small businesses as a real priority in terms of how we fashion um, the work that we do, and including regulation. Um, but we need smart regulation, and regulation should not have the only effect of slowing folks down and creating bureaucracy. Um, our next question is from Kristen Diesick uh, from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, Kristen, you're on the line. Uh, great. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you, Senator Harris, for taking our call. Um, I work for the Center for Automotive Research. We're a nonprofit think tank that looks at the auto industry. And the auto industry is in a space of great uncertainty right now. Um, we've got, of course, the investigation into changing the fuel, fuel economy and greenhouse gas regulations. There's some uncertainty about the market. There's new business models coming to this industry. There's new technology. And, of course, there's trade. Um, there's been great concern about the president's novel use of Section 232 to claim a national security threat and use tariffs to pressure our trading partners into deals. Um, Commerce Department has found that steel and aluminum, and now presumably cars and parts imported from the world, including our longtime allies and friendly countries like Canada, are harming U.S. national security. Especially with your homeland security and intelligence roles in the Senate, I'm interested to hear how you see the issue of national security in the global trading arena, and would you stay the course to protect and grow American manufacturing, and if not, what would you do differently? I appreciate your question, and, um, and, and I appreciate the connection you made between the point about trade and national security. Um, I do serve on Homeland Security Committee for the Senate, and I also serve on the Senate um, Select Committee on Intelligence, and I couldn't agree with, with you more in the premise of your question, which is that the relationship that we have with our allies is, is a source of America's strength, and we have to always value those relationships and understand that when we stand with our allies, when they can trust us to keep our word, when they can trust that we're not going to, to, to prefer unilateralism to what can be achieved through consensus and, and collaboration, um, 
we, we're going to be in a bad place if we don't correct course. And so um, when we're talking about trade manipulation, look, we have to work with our allies. And um, instead of being in a trade war, and our allies will help us on a number of levels, but including holding China accountable. And um, it is irresponsible to conduct trade policy um, by tweet. It is irresponsible to conduct trade policy in, by unilaterally acting without attempting to work with our allies, proven allies, around our collective um, goals and, and values. Um, because the values include protecting our workers. The values include making sure that we are avoiding human rights abuses. The values include protecting the climate. These are shared values. And um, it is important on so many levels that we join forces with our friends um, in, in making sure that these are priorities in terms of trade uh, and global trade. And of course, we have to invest in manufacturing, and um, there's no question about that. And, um, but I absolutely support the auto industry and support clean car standards um, and what we need to do in terms of um, not rolling back those standards, um, which will frankly cause us, if we roll those back, to fall back and look to lose competitive edge on innovation. Um, because we also know where this is all heading and let's let America be at the forefront of innovation and not being dragged around by others who have the courage to accept the future. Uh, our next question is from Scott Alexander from North Carolina. Scott, you're on the line. Thank you. Senator Harris, um, I'm with Eagle Solar and Light, a rooftop solar company with operations in North Carolina, Alabama, and Georgia. In each of these states and across the southeast, there are large utilities that are regulated monopolies. You mentioned the job growth in the solar industry over the next 20 years, but that might not happen in the southeast due to structural factors. Recognizing that these structural factors are largely state issues, what federal policies, if any, do you think could incentivize these utilities and the regulators to allow more distributed energy resources like rooftop solar that can lower energy costs for consumers? Thank you. Well, I think it's important that we invest in the solar industry, that we invest in workers and the kind of training that is necessary for folks to have the skills or, frankly, transfer skills that currently exist to meet the demands of those jobs. Um, you know, I've talked with friends in the building trades, and when I talk about the future of work in terms of renewable energies, for example, installation and maintenance of wind turbine solar paneling, they say to me, look, Kamala, you know, you guys can come up with fancy names for these new jobs, but it's the good old-fashioned skills that are going to get those jobs done. It's going to be welding. It's going to be electricians. It's going to be pipe fitters. And so as I think about how we go forward, uh, it's going to have to be about investing in innovation, but also investing in the folks that have been around a while and, and who have been developing the skills that are necessary to, to perform those jobs. Uh, Senator, your staff has just notified me that you've got to get back to your Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee hearing. Um, uh, thank you very much for making time. Uh, um, and if people would just stay on the phone for a second, I can walk you through how we'll get your questions uh, uh, to Senator uh, Harris. But Senator, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. I appreciate you all for taking the time. I look forward to a continuing conversation. And, and again, I want to thank all the leaders on this call for, for what you do every day. Um, so thank you all. Talk again soon, I hope.
Uh, thank you all for joining. We've got a number of people who wanted to ask questions. We've had some email questions emailed to us. We're going to forward every one of these uh, to the Harris campaign, um, and we will make sure you get a response back. Uh, we're also going to be sending out information about uh, the Senator Harris's policy team uh, and how to reach them if you want to make uh, recommendations on your own. Uh, if you're interested in hearing uh, our call la uh, from two weeks ago with Congressman John Delaney, it's available on our website. We're going to be doing a call with Senator Booker on the 13th of March um, and a, co a call with Tom Steyer likely next week, Tuesday. We're going to try to confirm that. Um, and um, um, if you um, are, are interested in, in, in um, uh, have any questions uh, uh, that you didn't get a chance to ask, please make sure you get uh, them to us. Um, and again, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we look forward to talking to you next week.